As inflation hits a 30-year high, I'm going to be asking, how will this change your life? Because it is going to affect the lives of many millions of people. The English Channel, many hundreds crossing the English Channel today. What are the government going to do? We're told a big statement by Boris Johnson coming tomorrow. And joining me on Talking Pines, member of the House of Lords, former MP, former MEP, Baroness Emma Nicholson. Good evening. Inflation. Now, you've got to be 40 years old to even know what the word means, because it kind of disappeared, but it's back. What is inflation? Well, I'll tell you. It's a disease of money, and it's caused by government. We have seen, since the beginning of this pandemic, vast money creation by government. In America, it's amazing to think, 28% of all dollars in circulation have been produced since 2020. It's mind-blowing. So what it means is we have more money in the system chasing the same number of goods and services. And surprise, surprise, that leads to shortages. I noticed there was no diesel at my local station this morning. And of course it leads to a rise in prices. And yet, one of the things that has amazed me over the last couple of years is how little central banks, politicians, governments understand about the problem that they themselves have helped to create. Let's have a look at Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking as recently as October. Are you worried about inflation? And, uh, and, and I'm very encouraged... Are you worried about by, inflation? I'm very encouraged by the growth are you that worried? I'm seeing. I, I understand you're, but are you worried about inflation? Well, people, have been, people have been worrying about inflation for a very long time. Uh, I'm looking at robust economic growth. Uh, and, and, and by the way, those, those fears have been unfounded. <laughs> the fears are unfounded. And it wasn't just him, it was the Bank of England and many other people. The fears are unfounded. And then when they realised inflation was happening, they said, don't worry, it's merely transitory. And now that the official inflation rate has hit 7%, but perhaps more significantly, the retail price index, which is how we used to measure it, has hit 9.9% way the highest for 30 years and heading towards the highest in 40 years. And even though we've got to that level, I still genuinely don't think that our political class understand what the impact of this is actually going to be. Now look, politicians, TV presenters, those that are well paid, they cannot, in my opinion, fully understand because they're out of touch with the impact of this on millions of folk. They're out of touch with the fear that many people are going through right now. And I say this because the first utility bills from quarter one are beginning to land on people's mats uh, and people are genuinely scared. So, I, you know, I have to say, I can't pretend, I can't pretend that my life is going to be fundamentally affected with an official inflation rate of 7%, but it is for millions of people their disposable income is going to fall. My guess is it will be pubs, restaurants, entertainment, where people spend their disposable income. My guess is they're the parts of the economy that will really hurt. Maybe people will genuinely turn the heating down. Either way, we're headed economically for the toughest year for decades, and it will affect many millions of people. So please, if you're worried about this, if you're concerned, tell me, how will inflation change your life. Let me know. Farage at gbnews.com.
UK. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Jeevan Sander, an economist at King's College London and former economist at HM Treasury. Jeevan, good evening. Good evening. It's wonderful to be here. I, well, I, well, thank you. And I, I have to ask you, as somebody that worked at the Treasury, how is it? How is it that the Bank of England? How is it that the Prime Minister? How is it that the Chancellor? How is it that the Treasury can have got this so completely and utterly wrong? Well, they did see the Bank of England certainly saw inflation rising. We'd seen that shipping costs have been rising because of the pandemic, and they did start to realise they had to act to do so. We start to see interest rates rise. We're starting to see quantitative easing beginning to wind down. I would say go a little bit faster, especially on the quantitative easing side. But on the other side, the government really hasn't reacted to what is effectively a once in a lifetime increase in prices. We're going to see the largest fall in family incomes for 50 years. Today, a 30 year high for inflation, and that's going to increase next month. That doesn't include the energy price rise of 50%. We needed to see the government act. We saw nothing from Rishi Sunak, a couple of sticking plasters, the average family over a thousand pounds worse off. And of course, the most vulnerable are about to see the worst falls in income. But my point is, Jeevan, I mean, you know, as recently as October, the Prime Minister was saying the fears are unfounded. And now they all say, don't worry, because at the end of this year, the inflation rate will fall sharply. And kind of what I've learned from economic history, and perhaps you'll agree or disagree with this, I don't know, but what I've learned about this disease of money called inflation is that once it sets in, it tends to last for quite a long time. What are your thoughts? What's your prognosis on where inflation... I know it's a difficult question, but where do you think inflation goes over the next year or two? So I think inflation is definitely going to be over 8%. I'm thinking probably closer to 10%. I'm hoping the Bank of England is sending clear signals now. They're going to get on top of inflation. That will feed through to, if you like, wage demands as well. But we should also remember these kind of temporary price spikes should also fall away. This isn't just a cause, if you like, of the Bank of England or quantitative easing. It's also because shipping costs are much higher, energy costs are much yeah. higher, and now food prices as well. So there are good reasons to think it should fall away. I very much hope we're going to see falling inflation by the end of the year. Well, uh, we may do, Jeevan. We may do, uh, but, but, but inflation either way is still here with us. And of course, you know, 52% of households uh, receive government money in some form, whether it's benefits, credits, whether it's pensions. And of course, the rise they received last week was 3.1%. Uh, so whichever way we cut this, um, this is very recessionary, isn't it, for the UK? It's certainly going to be a difficult year ahead, but also for those families, a huge shortfall in terms of the amount of money they're getting in their pockets and the amount prices are going to increase by. It was a shameful decision by the Chancellor. Let's make no mistake about that. He had an extra 20 billion more than he was expecting yeah, in his spring yeah, statement. Revenues. It would have cost about 10 billion to uprate those social security payments, including pensions, in line with prices. He chose not to do that. He chose to try and save that money and pre-announce an income tax cut and it will be the most vulnerable severely disabled children and pensioners those who cannot work they will suffer the most there is no way for them to make up the difference between lower social security payments and higher prices the chancellor should absolutely come forward and correct that mistake no well you've said that with, in, in a very strong way can i ask you finally uh, you know we are used in our political system to having government 
an opposition and, 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 and we sort of every four or five years get a choice between different economic visions. What are Labour really offering us right at the moment? So what Labour have been offering, of course, is a more comprehensive energy bill package. I'd also assume, by the way, they would have made different choices around uprating those social security payments, as well as stopping these tax rises. So actually, a little bit more kind of in the pockets of people who need it. One of the biggest surprises by far of the Conservative Party and this Chancellor was not protecting pensioners. I'm still baffled by that choice. I'm baffled because I know it's morally the right thing to do, but also you'd think this team, this kind of historic election-winning party would at least know that's also in their political interest as well. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to give them a tough time, I suspect, uh, as the months and years go by. Jeevan Sander, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. And it's sort of almost bizarre, folks, isn't it, that we're now talking about a Labour government that wants lower taxes than a Conservative government. I'm a little bit confused. Now, of course, Partygate. Hove back into view yesterday in a big way. Uh, we learned about the fines for the Prime Minister, his wife, and indeed for the Chancellor of the Exchequer. As I pointed out to you yesterday, they were actually criminal sanctions. Now, it's very interesting looking at the newspapers this morning. Some of the really big supporting papers saying, forget about it, there's a war on. You can't remove a Prime Minister during a war. But as I pointed out yesterday, Asquith went during World War I. Chamberlain went during World War II. Churchill went when we were still at war with Japan. And let me add to that, Mrs Thatcher went in the middle of the Gulf War. So there is precedent for it. We learnt shortly before we came on air that the Justice Minister, Lord Wolfson, has resigned uh, and he's talked about breaches of criminal law being the reason. Now, one of the great mysteries yesterday was the sheer number of MPs who'd either said they would put in letters of no confidence or they'd wait for the outcome of the Met investigation or indeed of the Grey Inquiry. Um, they've all gone very quiet. They've all gone to ground. Well, there's one that hasn't. His name is Nigel Mills. He's the Conservative Member of Parliament for Amber Valley. Uh, and Nigel, good evening. Good evening. Now, you're the one Conservative Member of Parliament who has spoken out today. You have put your head very firmly over the parapet uh, and you've declared uh, that Boris Johnson should go. Can you explain, please, to our viewers why? Well, we've never had a Prime Minister given a criminal sanction, as you just referred to it, while in office. Uh, so I, I, I just can't believe that, you know, anybody can really believe that the most senior lawmaker in the country can survive being fined for breaking the laws that he himself had introduced only a few weeks earlier and was on TV every other night exhorting us all to be, be following in the interests of um, the um, health and safety of the, whole, of the whole country. It just seems to me to be a completely untenable situation. Uh, I think, as you say, many of us were waiting to see the outcome of these inquiries. Well, the outcome came yesterday with a fine following a police investigation that the the Prime Minister has chosen to accept and pay. He could have appealed that if he thought it was wrong, but he's accepted it. So I, I just think, how do you stay in office when you're meant to be upheld to a higher standard than the rest of the country when, sadly, you've not lived Well, it could be, Nigel Mills, that we now expect quite low standards of our politicians. That's what public life has sunk to. Well, that's a pretty terrible state of affairs, isn't it, if that's the 
best uh, excuse we can have for this actually we don't expect all that much i mean i mean what next what more laws would you allow a prime minister to be seen to be breaking or bending you know i mean where do you draw the line on this situation he uh, you know, i just think it's never been done before it's not a good place to start i mean it's, it, it's not a small technical matter i mean these were pretty strict rules introduced by the Prime Minister to protect the country in a, in a health pandemic that millions of people around the country were observing in some of the most difficult personal situations imaginable. I mean, yeah, they're they going to forgive or forget a Prime Minister in this situation. No, I, I absolutely understand that. And, and we get so many messages from people saying, look, you know, our parents died in hospital. We weren't able to, even able to go and visit them. I understand all of that. But even Boris Johnson's fiercest critics in the House of Commons, in the Parliamentary Party, people like Roger Gale from North Thanet, are saying, ah, but now is not the time because there's a war on in Ukraine. Does it make sense to you to remove a PM whilst the Ukraine war is still going on? It's not an ideal time, but how long is that war going to go on for? I mean, you could argue it started in 2008, got worse in 2014, got a lot worse a few weeks ago. I mean, it could go on for months or years. We're really saying we can't make any change at any point in that situation. The, the French, one of the biggest powers in NATO, are having the election where the opposing candidate in the runoff would have a hugely different policy to this war than the incumbent. I don't think all the candidates in any leadership election that we might have will all have the same policy towards Ukraine as the Prime Minister has. There'll be no real uncertainty about the direction of UK policy on this. But I just think this comes down to a bit of a fundamental point of can we have somebody in the highest office of the land who has broken the law that he put in place while in that office? I mean, it just seems to me to be an untenable position. And heaven forbid he had to come back to ask the country for more restrictions due to some awful variant. I mean, who would listen? I, it's just well, a, no, that's, I, no, just no, no, I get that. Example. I get that point totally. Yeah, there's, you know, we really can't put up any with any more of do as I say, not as I do. I understand that completely. Final thought, uh, Nigel, and remember, this is before the watershed, so please, I want clean language. Um, what did the whip say to you and some of your parliamentary colleagues today? I've not heard from the whips, actually, so uh, you'll have to draw from that what you will. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for joining us. That was Nigel Mills, Conservative Member of Parliament for Amber Valley, who has put his head over the parapet and said Boris should go on the basis that lawmakers cannot be lawbreakers. In a moment, we will talk about GPs, and it's really interesting going around the country with Farage at large, with live audiences in the towns and cities that we've been to. One of the issues that has most vexed members of the public coming to see us is they simply cannot get GP appointments. It's driving them absolutely mad. Well, some official stats out earlier on today telling us that GPs only work an average of three days a week. We'll discuss that in just a moment. So I asked, how will rocketing inflation affect your life? What changes will you need to make? Otis says, right now, around the same, but the next few months may be interesting. Bobby says, it is hard to plan ahead when you never know how much anything is going to cost from day to day. And that's why I think those first utility bills 
coming through the door this week from quarter one are going to start to focus people's minds. I really do. Janice says, I am a pensioner and do not turn my heating on. Food prices have gone mad. Last night I had scrambled eggs on toast. So the electric hob and toaster were only on for 10 minutes. And I guess we're going to hear a lot more of those stories. Christina says, I am 65, unable to earn enough by working for health reasons and reliant on savings to get my state pension at 66. Those savings melt away with high inflation. I'm fortunate that I have them. Dawn says, I can't go to bingo anymore. That's my social life gone. I'm now stuck in worrying about my bills and cutting down on food. I'm just existing. Yeah, these are very sad messages and as I say I suspect over the next few months there'll be many many more of them because this is going to affect the lives of many many millions of people. I mentioned before the break GPs as we go around the country there is fury that people can't get GP appointments. The online, the Zoom consultation suits some working people who need re repeat prescriptions or things like that uh, but for many others and particularly I think uh, for those in the older end of the population in this country. Uh, they just don't get it. They actually want to go and see somebody. Now, a government-sponsored report now tells us that 60% of family doctors are found to be working six half-day sessions or less a week. Indeed, by lunchtime Friday, only 50% of GPs are at work. And I think these are numbers that are going to enrage people. I don't understand why this is. And I bet you at home don't understand it either. Well, perhaps somebody who can help us with this is a GP from Middlesex, Dr. Mo Kaki. Dr. Mo, good evening. Hi, good evening, Nigel. How are you? Hello there. Nice to see you. Now, please tell me, you know, there are a lot of very, very unhappy people out there. They've grown up. They've grown up with a National Health Service. They've grown up paying their tax, their national insurance, and they see as one of their basic rights in modern civilised Britain that they can go and visit a general practitioner. And now they can't, or it's increasingly difficult for them to do. And, when, and Mo, when you see something like this, that's, you know, and it's a government, and maybe you tell me it's wrong, but it's government research suggesting that GPs work a three-day week. Can you understand why the public are falling out of love with GPs and the NHS? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I think, um, I think uh, it's a really challenging time, isn't it? And, and I, I fully sympathise with people who are trying to get appointments, trying to see their GPs and, and making it very hard for them. I think one of the things that we know is that GP surgeries are mandated. They have a contract. They can't do anything about this contract. They have to offer a certain amount of appointments. They have to see a certain number of patients. So there's a distinction to be made between how many appointments are available and how many doctors are filling that and how they're filling their schedule. Regardless of where you are in the whole of the UK, your surgery that you go to will have a certain number of slots they have to offer. Um, and, uh, and so those appointments have been there from the beginning of COVID till the end. The only thing is that um, they've changed the manner. And I think this is the bit where people have found some challenges. You know, some people, as we've spoken about on previous shows um, with yourself, have found yeah. the face-to-face -face appointments. They really miss them. Some say, do you know what, this works brilliantly for my lifestyle. But I take what you, what you said. I think the elderly particularly are the ones who we're finding prefer to see people face to face. Mo, Mo look, look I, I, I accept 
that there are, for a lot of busy people, self-employed people, etc., who want to repeat prescription, I accept that one minute on Zoom does the job, suits them, suits everybody. I get that, and I think that's a factor um, within the NHS that perhaps can stay, because that works for some people. But for the majority of people, they are, they're not just frustrated, they're angry. And you talk about challenges, but I don't think people sitting at home, or people that we've met, with the Farage at Large tour around the country, they don't want to hear words like challenges. They want to hear about solutions. And, and you say, well, a certain number of slots are allocated. Well, presumably the answer here is there are not enough slots being allocated. I want to know, Mo, Mo why GPs who are well-paid, they certainly have been ever since the Tony Blair deal 20 years ago, why are well-paid GPs at a time when we have a massive, massive health backlog in this country, why are they only working a three-day week? That, for me, is the question. Sure. I think, uh, coming back to your first point, I think it's really interesting because I, I love this sort of reductionist approach of a, a one-minute phone call for prescriptions, etc. I, I wish it was that easy. I wish it would, uh, hadn't <laughs> taken me 11 years to, to, quali to qualify as a doctor to and a GP. Um, anyone could have done it, of course. The phone calls are triage calls done by experts who are able to assess things very quickly. And, and of course, what we found was throughout the pandemic, whilst access and seeing people face to face was 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 a pain point, we of yeah. course found that sickness and those things from the outer areas, not COVID, remained well and, and patients were looked after. I think if we come back to the point of regarding uh, appointments and accessibility, I, I fully agree with you. I mean, I'm someone who shares your concern and everyone's concern. I, I wish there was an ability for us to have more appointments and more doctors to fill those appointments. But I'd love to come back to kind of what happens on those days you're talking about, because yeah. those days are not sort of someone coming in, seeing a couple of people on the phone call and then going back. They are telephone calls of triaging maybe 20 to 30 people in the morning. Then there's people you may see face to face. So I still see people face to face. Then there's home visits. Then there's prescription requests that come in. So not just signing off a repeat prescription, but, you know, questions. Can I have this controlled drug? Can I not? Queries from patients. There's letters from the hospital. No, I don't doubt. I don't doubt any of this. I don't doubt any of this. But let me get back yeah. to what I think is the fundamental question here. Why are well-paid doctors only working three days a week? 60% of them are only working three days a week at a time where we have a backlog medical emergency. I'm just asking, why? Well, I think the question of the three days is the key point here. I think the point is that the three days are not sort of three simple days. They're three days back-to-back, 12-hour -back, days. So I think you're coming to say, call it 36 hours after three days. It's almost a full week, bar four hours. So doctors are working extremely hard. And I think the thing to remember is, along with all of the work that GPs have been doing, they've been rolling out this... Uh, vaccine program above and beyond sort of their hours, so the evenings, the weekends, particularly primary care, particularly GPs. The reason why we're in this incredible situation where we don't have to wear masks, but we can go freely. Now, those freedoms have come at a price, I think, and, I, and I'm sad to say that I think the reason we're in this situation where GPs are probably scaling back a little bit, even though, you know, three days is still close to a full working week in hours, is because they're burnt out, they're exhausted. They've been working so hard to do all sorts of things. I know for myself, I was working with the hospitals, working in the surgeries, working in COVID hubs, working in COVID outreach programs, working COVID assessment programs in the evenings. 
and vaccinating when I had time on a voluntary basis. I wasn't being paid for some of these roles. And I'm not uh, um, an individual who's on my own. There were so many who were like me doing the same. Well, look, Mo, Mo, come on. If you, if you were a shirker, if you were a shirker, you wouldn't come on this show, would you? If you were a shirker, you wouldn't come on this show. And you're doing your very best to tell me that GPs are working damned hard and that the three days they week are quite long days. The government research doesn't fully back that up, but it doesn't counter it either. It just suggests six half-day sessions a week. But I'm not going to argue you know, whether those half sessions were eight hour or six hour shit. I'm not going to argue about that. What I'm saying to you is you may argue the case well, but can you understand why members of the public would feel very angry hearing that well-paid GPs are only working three days a week? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's, again, a little bit to do with how we frame it. You know, I think well-paid GPs not doing enough is, is, the, is the rhetoric, which is, yeah. of course, exciting in itself. But I think the truth is that GPs are working really, really hard. And yes, they're remunerated well for that. I'm not disputing that, but I, I do think they work extremely hard. And I think the challenge is the same from the public as it is for us. I would love to speak to more of my patients to deal with more of their concerns. I, I think the first thing I speak to every single patient I speak to is, I've got four things and I've been trying to get hold of you for so long and I can't get hold of it. And, and it breaks my heart. And and I will often stay longer, as will so many of my colleagues, add extra slots, call people in. I, but no, I don't doubt. Only, I, I, only but there is only a finite amount they can do. So I think that's that's the challenge. It's to do with the funding of the NHS and the way the primary care is supported, well, really. Um, Mo, we will, I promise, we will come back and discuss this subject over the next few months. Please, and you're always welcome to come back uh, on this programme and argue your case. And thank you. Well, I wonder whether you're all convinced at home. Hey, I want the Farage moment. So we have a Conservative chairman, chairman of a Conservative association, and a photograph has appeared of him at a fancy dress party in the 1980s. And there he is, dressed up in his Nazi uniform, and so he's been suspended. Now, his defence is, I have no recollection of this at all. Yes, there were various wild passes. I cannot absolutely rule it out. And it reminded me, there must be some sort of forgetfulness problem that's going through the Conservative Party. After all, when questioned on Partygate, the Prime Minister told the House of Commons he had been assured that none of the rules had been broken, that these were not actually parties at all, and I thought, uh, in a lighter vein on the whole thing, I thought the Matt cartoon on the front page of today's Daily Telegraph summed it up rather well. If you can remember lockdown in Downing Street, you weren't there. So I rather like that. <laughs> you know, we've been talking about the serious side of breaking the law, but let's try and have a bit of a laugh at it sometimes. Now, you know what happened a few days ago? Marine Le Pen in the runoff against President Macron. Some opinion polls suggesting that it's going to be a very, very close contest. Well, I tell you what, Project Fear 2.0 has started. And the French, just three days into this runoff, they're going even further, even further than Osborne and Cameron did in 2016 with our referendum. Let's have a look at some of the French media and let's see what they're saying. 
Yes, if Marine Le Pen were elected, here is the nuclear arsenal that would be in her hands. Would you want this woman in charge of our nuclear deterrent? Well, that's fairly clear what they're talking about there. Um, and then, and then, almost unbelievably, uh, Gerard Darmanyor, and he is one of the senior ministers one of the senior ministers in Le Pen's government, and he has said today, and there it is, in the Parisian, with Marine Le Pen, the poor may die. That's what the Minister of the Interior is saying. So she's going to launch nukes. You're all going to die of starvation. It's all a disaster. You must vote for President Macron. They tried this trick with Brexit. They tried it against Trump in 16. They lost both times. I wonder whether they are protesting just far too much. Now, my last little story for you today... And this is going to be a big story tomorrow. Uh, I understand the Prime Minister will make a big speech somewhere in Kent tomorrow on the migrant situation. Well, I can tell you that many, many hundreds of young men crossed the English Channel today in inflatable dinghies. The first pickup from a Dover lifeboat was at 2.30 this morning. As we went on air, there were still operations ongoing in the English Channel. And one of the reasons that people are queuing for hours at Terminal 2 in Heathrow and elsewhere is so many border force have been sent to Dover to deal with these vast numbers. You see, the impact, the impact of this illegal trade is being felt by an awful lot of people. Much more on this tomorrow, and we will have in the studio Tony Smith tomorrow, former boss of the border force, and we'll ask him, are the government any closer to solutions? Because you know what? The number of people that have come across the channel so far this year is more than three times what it was last year at this stage of the year. Remember, the final figure last year, 28,000. Work it out. A few more thoughts on inflation and its cost to you. Mary says, no food, no heating, no lights. Judy says, I run a beauty salon, and having survived the pandemic, this squeeze on the cost of living is very worrying. My business depends on the amount of disposable income people have left after paying for essentials. And yeah, you know, I talked, I talked there, didn't I, earlier on, about pubs, restaurants, entertainment. And yeah, I guess, you know, going out to have your hair done regularly is something many people want to do, but it is out of disposable income. And it's very tough for so many people, small businesses, self-employed, who got through that pandemic and may be facing this year something just as bad. Rod says 7% is about half of what real people are feeling. Gas companies have hit us twice already and plan to hit us again. While other measures of inflation, such as in the building industry, would suggest folks is running at about 20%. And finally, Tony says, the longer this government go on, the more I think their idea of levelling up is to drive us all into poverty while they skip off into the sunset with their pockets full. Well, goodness me, that really is very, very cynical indeed. Now, in a moment, we will open the GB News Tavern for Talking Pines, and I'll be joined by somebody who was a member of the House of Lords, has been a member of the House of Commons, has been a member of the European Parliament, and for more than one political party, I'll be joined in a moment by Baroness Emma Nicholson. It's Talking Pints, and I'm joined by Baroness Emma Nicholson. And, of course, Emma, I remember 
being elected to the European <laughs> Parliament and being on a stage with you in 1999. That's and right. Different parties, Absolutely. different positions. Absolutely. But but we'll talk a bit. You promised that. that you were going to go in with no expenses at all, and then we found you in a yeah. six-star hotel. Nobody did a six-star <laughs> hotel well, at all anyway. Well, what I did actually was to give lots of the expenses to good causes. And then I was told that was effectively fraud. Absolutely. And they'd fine me. So, I mean, <laughs> the whole thing was amazing. Well, come on, I'm looking but... for good cause collections tonight. <laughs> well, we... I've just come back from Ukraine. I know, I know. I'm desperately anxious no, about the children. We're going to talk about Ukraine, right. I promise. Now, Emma, you come from the political aristocracy, don't you? Totally, I mean, I mean, utterly, yeah. except that women have never been any aristocracy at all in politics. We're always below the ledge. Well... Begging. Well, we have had Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister and we've had Theresa May as... So things have changed in the last... Yes, I mean, but that's the Conservative Party years. for you. We, we get very unusual people forward. That's, I think, is our, one of our distinctive features from the other parties. Well, I was, I was going to say that, that, you know, you come from this political aristocracy, members of your family for centuries going back have been in Parliament. So I was thinking, in that way, Emma's a bit like the Churchill family because they've always been around in politics. But then I realised... We've been there longer. <laughs> <laughs> Much longer. But then I realised you're even more like Churchill in one way because you were a Conservative... And then you joined the Liberal Democrats. And then, just like Churchill, you rejoined the Conservatives. Correct, correct. Which makes me ask, what was the, what was the philosophy behind your political career? Well, that maybe led you to I looked change? up Churchill's career because he did exactly the same. He did. I know he did. <laughs> I know he did. Well, I have to say, my family were very annoyed indeed. They've said, well, Conservatives, what the heck are you doing? So I said, well, you know, that's life. And my poor husband put up with everything. You know, he was very good about it. He just uh, wanted to be left alone and, uh, you know, not be fussed with all this politics, which he said was a great distraction from the free market, which was his True. big passion. No, he, he's right. Well, absolutely. The more government there is, absolutely. the less free market That's exactly there what is. he said. I mean, Emma, I think the he reason... Said, I don't mind what you do, but for God's sake, keep them all away from me. <laughs> my business only works with no government well, interference at all. That was what Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan used to say absolutely. that to the Americans. But, Emma, I think the reason... I think, I, I, I think the reason that you left the Conservatives, joined the Lib Dems, is that you, unlike me, you were a big believer in the European Union, and that was quite a central part of your political philosophy. I've always believed in cooperation rather than confrontation. Mm -hmm. Having been grown up just after the war, when there was Auschwitz coming, you know, and all these politicians in the family, we knew all too much about it all as it went through. I could say that you had to persuade people to get on. It didn't mean that we should have to lose our independence, and that, of course, is what has taken us out of the EU, because we can't have other parliaments telling our parliament what to do. Mm. But we do need the continental colleagues to get together and to get on with each other and not to fight. They seem to have this extraordinary capacity to fight at the drop of a hat. And we don't have that. So, know. OK. It's because we're an island, okay. probably. So, so are you... How can I put it? Are you reconciled to Brexit? 
Do you accept that it's happened and, and there's no going back? Well, I have to tell you that when I got to Brussels, I couldn't understand how Britain had lasted there for so long. <laughs> but you were a Liberal Democrat. <laughs> well, I can't help that. I was in a rage of the Conservative Party, and I'm certainly not going Labour. But you see, when I was uh, smaller, uh, lobbying and campaigning with my father in his constituency of Farnham, mm. I remember going around with three uncles, a brother-in-law and a father, knocking on the doors, suggesting people to join the European Union, because that's what they felt was the right thing to do. And I had a question I couldn't answer. And I ran back and asked the great men, what should I say? For the first time in my political life ever, mm. father and uncles and I can't remember about my brother-in-law. I better not denigrate him on this, you know. He's still alive. But they all said, you can't answer that. For goodness sake, don't try to answer it. If we tell the population the truth, they will never join the European Union and we need wow. to be there now. Because the question was, will this parliament override our parliament? Yeah. I wasn't allowed to answer. So the whole thing was based on an untruth, really? The whole thing was based on the belief, which I think was true, Certainly it proved true that we were very, very broke indeed. Which we and were. And we needed this market. Yeah, yeah. But then, you see, before we joined, after we agreed to join and before we joined, they changed the rules and we somehow didn't notice or we chose to ignore it. And it turned, far from being a free market, it turned out to be a closed market. So it wasn't exactly oh, what my relationship this is, wanted. This it wasn't is, what any of us wanted. This is, we wanted a proper free market. This is revelatory to me. <laughs> because well, that's because of my great antiquity. <laughs> I was there at the time. And, no, even and I have no, to it tell is. you, in 1988-9, when I got into the Commons, I was popped on a committee for computer software uh, mm. copyright, uh, which was absolutely grist to my mill because I'd spent 11 years in the computer industry and nobody else had. They didn't know what they were talking about. Tony Blair was leading the opposition, by the way, and Mr Butcher, MP, was leading for the government. And they all absolutely totally got it wrong, so I had to get them to turn it upside down, completely upside down, withdraw the bill and begin again. They didn't know what they were talking about. So I went round to see the department and they said, oh, don't worry, it doesn't matter. I said, well, look here, we've got to be in line in cinch. In fact, we should be leading the European Union on this. Oh, don't even worry about that. Why not? Oh, because our law overrides theirs anyway. Mm. Yeah. So I'm terribly sorry. I think you've got it wrong. wrong no, no, we're the officials, and the minister says the same. <laughs> I was so stunned. I rushed <laughs> off to the House of Commons Library and looked everything up, and of course I was right. Yeah, yeah. We lay under a delusion that we were not under their control uh, yeah. as we were. So, so, yeah. That's why I was amazed that we lasted for so long. Uh, uh, no. Well, it took a long time for the truth to really get out, I think, to a big audience. Emma, you've served in the House of Commons. You did 10 years in Brussels and Strasbourg. You're now in the House of Lords, and you've done all these things despite having quite a profound degree of deafness. I'm, I was born profoundly deaf, almost 100% deaf. Yeah. Um, so, but it's just a fact of life. And I also went nearly blind when I was nine. That's never come back. So my communication skills are pretty mad. And I, I think it's quite a good idea as a member of the House of Commons. But the question I want to ask is, how have you overcome those difficulties? How have you managed to do this? Uh, well, I lip read. Yes. The worst place I've ever worked in, and I say this quite profoundly and on purpose, is in the House of Lords. 
They take no trouble at all. I've been in paid employment since I was 21. Yeah. All the way up the line, people have immediately helped, given way, given all the rest of it. The House of Lords is the worst place for disability of any kind that I've ever been in. Really? Yes, it's very, very odd, and I keep pressing it. And the other day, disabled peers like George Shinquin, like Baroness Great Thompson, they feel yeah. exactly the same. I don't know how to bring the House of Lords up to speed on this. Well, totally I, failed. I wonder, though, is the House of Lords really credible anymore? We must have a second chamber. Yes. We've got to have a second I, chamber. I agree with that. I think the lack of credibility comes to the Prime Minister's appointing too many people. They yeah. shouldn't be allowed to do that. If you look at Nick Clegg, for example, it's absolutely mad that he persuaded uh, uh, Cameron to, to appoint 110 or something. Lib Dem peers, well, why? When there were hardly any members of parliament from the Lib Dem party. So I think that's a huge weak spot, uh, and that's got to be addressed. But we must have a second chamber, and I believe it should be non-elected second chamber, because having two elected chambers fighting each other will help nobody. Well, you're right, and that's always been the great dilemma, that two elected chambers would battle the supremacy. We used to have a unicameral set up, as you know, for yeah. over 100 years, we were unicameral. Yeah. We stopped that, I think, at about 1,340. Um, so we had unicameral for over a year, over 100 years, yeah. when we had a bit of everything yeah. in there. I'd quite like that. I well, think it's tremendous I, fun. I think I'd go for an elected second chamber, but it's no, not... No! Yes, of course. There's, it's too comfortable for all of you. No, it's not. <laughs> I love being elected. It's much, much more fun being elected. Far more challenging, keeps you far more awake and much more enjoyable. There you are. But I think you have to have a balance of something different. Mm. And I think the appointed, if you can get the appointment system much tougher and tighter, and owing allowing maybe prime ministers just a few in their back pocket, they've got to have something to give away. And we're not allowed to bribe in our society. They have to well, give something. What's the difference? Well, it's the numbers. It's the numbers. It's Huge the numbers. Wow. You know what Nick Clegg did, it was quite wicked. I mean, he drenched the House of Lords with people. Yeah. It wasn't right. It was a one-party rule in a very weird way. And Strange. I think it's very important to have a second chamber. And yes, I think it should be appointed. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the crossbenchers, you'll never find them standing for Parliament. And they are outstanding, some of them. Well, all of them. it's a defence of the House of Lords. But I want to move on, if I can, because you've always uh, involved yourself with charity and humanitarian campaigns and causes. And I saw some pictures the other day, and there you were in Ukraine. So tell us what you're doing, please. I'm terribly unhappy about every aspect of Ukraine. But if you just look at children, they have, I think it's 7.3 million children, 7.6 million children in Ukraine. Two thirds of those have been dumped, left out, have mm. been thrown out. Two-thirds of all Ukrainian children are not at home. They haven't got their homes any longer. And inside all of that, there's a huge volume of child trafficking. I've done a large amount of work for decades, largely from the European Parliament, actually. I remember. In Romania, <laughs> and children also in Georgia, in yeah. Moldova, in, in um, Armenia, and in Russia. And I know what's going on in Ukraine. And Thousands of children have been deported from Ukraine. Even worse, if you think of it that way around, it's possibly worse. Russia has stolen 110,000 children from Ukraine. It's taken them really? To, yes, and it's taken them to Russia and it's taking their identity away and making them Russian. 
so they won't see their parents ever again. Wow. Is, people like me are needed in Ukraine. Is, is that happening? Are the children going from the eastern provinces? Yes. or Yes. yes. But, and these are contested areas, aren't they? No, these children will never see their parents again. Wow. And they're being forced to be Russian. This is against every single principle of human rights. So, so I'm needed there. Yeah. And people like me and a lot more people like me. My team come from Romania, yeah. where we've actually managed to do what we set out to do in the beginning, which is bring society together and not have children being chucked out because they're somehow the wrong size, style, background. Mm. They've got a tiny little hair lip or something. Yeah. All of that is now yeah. in the past. Well, and we've done that in Romania. So we now want those Romanian principles to come into the wider Ukraine. Well, you've got a very big job on your hands. I need some support. <laughs> I know. Well, there we are. You can all help. Where do people go if they want to support they you? They go to the AMAR Foundation, A-M-A-R. Yep. And we've got a website and I've got some Twitters out and they can chuck anything in. You know, it doesn't matter if it's just five pounds. Anything at the moment is better okay. than nothing for Ukrainian children. They are a huge risk and an awful lot of thousands have gone already. We'll never see them again. Emma Nicholson, thank you for joining me on Talking Thanks Bites. Thanks for having me. Thank you. OK, we've got two minutes left on the programme and it's time for Barrage the Farage, but I've kept the noble Baroness here in case I get very difficult questions. Sonia asks, what would you both say your favourite thing about working in the European <laughs> Parliament was? What was your favourite thing? Working with my chairman, uh, who was uh, absolutely brilliant and completely mad German, German Christian <laughs> Democrat. And half the time he chucked the meetings over to me, I was his vice chairman. Yep. And when I would send for him, because I was exhausted after an hour, the badge messenger would say, terribly sorry, Baroness, I can't bring Mr. Brock, but it's his turn. I said, come on, he's got to take over. Mm. No, no, you don't understand, Baroness. He's standing on the bar and dancing. Yes. And if we bring him yes. down, yes. he will collapse. Yes, I do remember he liked That's to... Elmar Brock. I... was the best thing. <laughs> I do remember he liked to drink. And for me, the best thing was, of course, causing chaos in the chamber, which I loved. Philip asks, how would it affect the UK if Marine Le Pen wins? And that's a very good question. It's a very good question. Um, I guess if Le Pen was president, she couldn't be more anti-British than Macron, could she? Because Macron... I don't know about that. Uh, well, Macron's been horrible to us, hasn't yeah, he? That's OK. We can win her round in a minute. I'm sure <laughs> of that. I mean, I've been much more worried about Macron than I thought I would be. Really? You know, very unhappy about him, yes. Interesting. It, I mean, he believes he's, you know, another Charles de Gaulle. That's the problem. Yes. And these huge people believing that they're God is not... She doesn't think that. Interesting. She's got more humility, I think, inside her. She's already changed away from her father's position. Yes. She's already chucked out a lot of those yes. policies. That can't have been easy. I would never have believed 25 years ago on a platform elected alongside Emma Nicholson that I'd hear such great sense from her, but I have this evening. <laughs> I'll, I'll be back tomorrow. It's Mark Stein in a moment. <laughs>